Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're listening to the Bow Hunter Planet Podcast, your gateway to the wonderful world of archery. Hey guys, and welcome to another edition of Boulder Planet Podcast right here on Carbon TV. If you're watching this video or if you're listening online, you can listen to it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, but you already know that because you're listening. So I guess that makes that makes sense. Or if you're watching it on video and you want to listen to it while you're driving, you can check it on iTunes or wherever you get it. So anyhow, uh, it's Tim and myself, Dave, here tonight. Um, we are with Nick Fisher from AAE Arizona Archery Products. And uh, we wanted to basically sit down with Nick and kind of go over this brand because, you know, I've always felt that AAE is obviously a target market, you know, home run, you know, obviously the target guys love AAE. And a lot of times you'll get that mixture of conversation in the bow hunting world where sometimes their name is dropped in and then people don't know it as much. I feel at least. And so that's one of the reasons I really wanted to have them on the show was to kind of go over the product line, the history and all that. So we invite Nick here today to do such a thing. So Nick, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. Excellent. And um, so I guess let's start with the history, Nick. Tell us about the history of AAE, how it started and, uh, you know, how it's come to be. Well, um, AAE was originally uh, known as Pasta Fletch in 1958. Um, My grandparents purchased that company from Max Hamilton and his wife in 1971. And then, uh, yeah, from there, I am now third generation owner. My, My dad, my uncle bought it from my grandparents in 2000. And after my uncle retired in 2012, my dad became sole owner and he retired a little over a year ago and left me. Off to the races. Uh, so you've been working there kind of your whole career? Uh, yeah, since I was 10. So almost 30 years. Wow. Yep. That's yep. so cool. So kind of art. what we say is archery is who we are. You know, and that that's the core of what we love, but injection molding is what we do. Um, we got into injection molding in the late 70s, early 80s to, to originally build Knox, and then quickly found out that, you know, injection molding lends itself to application in virtually every industry. So um, I, there's hardly an industry you mentioned that we don't touch in some form with injection molded product. And that's re- really our injection molding is what supports our love for archery. We, you know, we heavily sponsor most all of the organizations, shooters, um, you know, and then just your small local events from door prizes. Almost anybody who reaches out to us and asks for door prizes for your, your little local club shoot that might have 50 shooters. We're going to try to help them out in some way as well. So very cool. So you guys got started out with Knox. How did it kind of evolve? And because you you have a ton of different products and a lot of different categories. Um, did that kind of come more in the recent years or were you kind of, kind of building product line as, as you started back all the way from, what, 50 years ago? Yeah, yeah. So really, originally, so the pl- plastic clutch veins, you know, and that's what that's what we were up until the late 70s, you know, strictly making veins, um, added adhesives. I think the original Fastec glue, which is still available to this day, still works exceptionally well um, in the late 70s. And then 
expanded from there into injection molding to make knocks. Um, back then, the Z knock and the Plasti knock, which the Plasti knock is still sold today. Um, you know, and that's a swedge style arrow knock. And then from there, everything just kind of slowly expanded with ideas, you know, as anybody does in the archery world, everybody has an idea. I want to bring this to market, that to market. And of course, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, um, it was very easy to have an idea that would change archery as you knew it, you know. And of course, as you know, I liked it. Matt McPherson put it best about three or four years ago when it came to evolving archery. We're down to splitting hairs now. So to really create a product that's impactful now really has to be really well thought out. So, um, but yeah, it just slowly evolved based on veins and knocks for a long time in archery. And we really kind of were the ghostwriter in the industry through the 80s and 90s. Um, we molded all of Easton's knocks. My grandpa and Jim Easton go back as best friends. Um, you know, archery back in the 60s and 70s was a very small niche group. So if you were anybody, you knew everyone. So um, <laughs> we hold patents. My grandfather holds patents to things that nobody would ever guess that um, he gifted to the archery world that would have changed the outlook of our entire company. We'd be getting paid on daily and he gave them to the archery world, you know? So he, uh, he developed our current string and cable system on bows. I was standing there when the idea came to his head because we had a lead sink come off the end of an old steel cable bow and go through a header, header beam of a garage door. Oh boy. He looked, he, I was about 10 years old. And he looked at me and said, that would have killed one of us. I said, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. About two days later, he developed our current version of the standard string and cable bus system. So, wow, um, so cool. Yeah. So yeah. With that history comes, um, you know, one of the things about history of archery, in my opinion, and I work on the series for us called the classic series. And I love doing it because it covers things like you're talking about. And we, we started with just bow reviews from the old bows, trying to just go back into the 1990s right but then i realized that there's way more to this than the 1990s so i started really working on what i'm calling archery legacy which is something I, i'm doing on the side it's like a side project it's, it's a lot of work so i can only do it slowly but my project is based on the fact that to capture as much history as possible in the archery world and taking all that in and have somewhere for it to go mm. um so with all those inventions and little things that people just don't realize it, it, it builds on, on itself. Right. So as your grandfather built one thing, someone took that idea and built another thing and that someone else took that idea and built another thing. And that kept going. And you could say the same for things like uh, the, the uh, telescope, you know, looking at the stars, the insane concepts or how the planets move, <laughs> you know, everybody built onto something, but in the archery, it's very amazing. Cause it, it it really dwarfed into something very special, in my opinion, and where we're at today with all these great products and, and companies still finding ways to create and develop new things. It's, it blows my mind, honestly. It blows my mind. It really is, you know, and it's amazing. Even we have a new engineer here that we hired recently to help with my dad's retirement, and he knows, knows nothing about archery. He, he helped at a kid's camp locally here. And uh, so he knows, you know, your basic stick and string as they teach you at a church camp or something. But um, even bringing him in and that new set of eyes, just suddenly a new idea. And you go, how many hundreds of thousands of people that are stuck in the box of archery couldn't think of something that simple? Yeah. 
you know, but again, it's building on already an existing idea, an existing concept, like you said, and it's just making those improvements that again, because we're cutting hairs now and trying to find those fine, small things that improve archery for the archer now. Yeah. What is what is your um speaking of like the catalog going into the the, the products a little bit, what is your like number one selling vein you have? White mag stealths. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was looking um I'm looking at all of them. There's so many. And I and I personally I don't really think twice about veins, to be honest. Like when I buy arrows or I get my arrows, I don't really think much of what's on them or you know how they fly. And I notice that you guys have a, a lot of different um types uh mm -hmm. some are really small some have different curves to them uh can you tell us a little bit about that like what does that do does why why do people want like a is it make it fly faster if it's smaller like i guess can you give us a little insight on how the veins work yeah, absolutely i i definitely nerd out on arrow builds and obviously particularly veins um you know there's absolutely such thing as too much vein first and foremost you know if you if you look at your target archers around the world it's certainly shooting outdoors um if they're shooting a smaller diameter arrow shooting longer distances they're going to run smaller veins um you know you're they're most of your good target archers shoot a well-tuned bow so they don't need that much vein to begin with because what a vein does is just correcting whether it's correcting a poor tune or human air wind some sort of outside force you know and and when I talk bows, I always like to talk under the understanding that the bow is tuned well. Um, and as a target archer myself, maybe not on the level that, say, Gaius, my pro staff coordinator and marketing head is here. You know, he's one of the top five archers in the world this year. But uh, I truly believe a properly tuned bow is more critical than anything because then that built that that steps it down to actually putting the right components on the bow to be the most efficient for you. So when you get down to veins, you know, assuming a properly spined arrow, properly tuned bow, the first thing I'm going to ask you is what broadheads are you shooting? You know, and again, everybody in shapes, everybody has their own preference. The short high, high profile vein has been popular for 20 years. You know, Blazer started that in the early 2000s um, and it's, they've just built on that success and popularity of the vein, but and we, we have two or three short high profile, high profile veins ourselves, um, as do most everybody in the industry that produces veins. However, short high profile veins are horrible in the wind. They are very, very loud. Um, they have numerous issues with why they're not a better option. They correct very well. They're great. They steer well. They correct well. They do those things well. But again, when I look at veins, I'm talking about a, a well-tuned bow. So, you know, if you're going to tell me, hey, I shoot a Rage, um, Lee and Tiffany are a prime example. They're shooting RPM 2.0 and a four-fledged. It's a tiny little target vein. It's the number one winningest vein in target archery. And they shoot that with a Rage because they tune a bow well, and it's all they need to steer that arrow. So there's – Lee learned pretty quick right off because he's been doing some of these extreme hunts. And I think it was two years ago he was hunting in uh, Colorado, Wyoming, hunting for antelope. And it was on their show. You can see he shoots this antelope in something 30, 40 mile an hour crosswinds. And he's shooting um, the max stealth at the time. And that bigger, larger vein, that arrow just really kicks hard in the wind. And he, you know, still harvested the antelope, no problem. But he got us on the phone right away. And what do I do about this? You know, what can we change? Because he was getting ready to go hunt that, uh, I think it was a mountain goat in Alaska or something like that. And, you know, expecting high winds very long shots so we worked through his arrow build and um 
got us tuned to where he didn't need much vein. So that's the primary purpose is your vein is there to correct. So less is more if you don't need it. You know, I always want to have enough to cover human air, but I'm certainly not going to tell somebody to run a ton of vein. You see a lot of guys running four fletch with bigger veins these days. And albeit it steers and it covers up a ton. If you're trying to shoot far, it's not always the best option, which isn't, you know, and that's being honest because the more veins people are buying, the more they're putting on the arrows, the more veins are consuming, which means more sales for me, but it might not necessarily be the best setup for you. Now that, yeah. that makes a ton of sense. And I, I think the Dave's point, it's something that I, we don't really think about all that often, mm -hmm. right? It's, you know, the vein component of it is, is important and the wind conditions and all that stuff. Um, but there's other, there's other parts of what you're doing and how you're setting up your bow that matter just as much. So very, very, I great think you, yeah. I think when you buy your arrows, you expect the veins on there to work. So that's, that's generally, I think what happens with people, but I guess my question is in regards to that is do most arrow companies create their own vein or do they acquire from like yourself or other companies? Like, how does that usually work? They acquire them from a vein manufacturer. Yeah, we OEM for half a dozen or more arrow companies, Easton being the largest, um, Victory, right on down. I, I think the only arrow company we're not making a vein for in some format is Gold Tip. But they, you know, they Gold Tip, they own their own vein manufacturing company. They bought, uh, what was it, Vein Tech? Oh, okay. Yeah. years ago. So, you know, and, and they're in pretty close as well with Q2I because, um, you know, Vein Tech in Norway, which is now Q2I, were the same people at one point in time. So, um, but yeah, there's really only four major players in the, in the vein game. Cause it's, it, it's a process. You really need to understand what you're doing. And it's, it, it's a large expense to get started on, yeah. um, you know, and everybody uses their own materials, but in the end it's, it's, we're all similarly trying to attempt the same thing. So it just comes down to, you know, how good's your adhesion, how good's your quality. Um, we pride ourselves on those two in particular. So you know, when I grew up, when I was growing up uh, doing archery, I <laughs> I used to love, like, I used to love, like, getting my veins done. I, I never really knew which veins were which or anything like that. I'm not going to act like I did, but the colors, right? Like, mm -hmm. I would love to get my veins set up. And I remember getting the arrows back, and I'd be, like, so excited. They're, like, XX78s, and they'd have, like, special color, like, two red, one white, or two bright green, one white. And I just remember that feeling of, like, man, look at this. Look how... And I don't know what it is about being in sync, but people love being in sync and hunting. I don't know why it is, but it just is like whether you're in camo, you want to have the same camo from head to toe, or if your bow is, is a camo, you want all those products in camo or all in black and a blackout. So like, I feel like it always comes down to that, but that was, that was a fun time. And I just remember that, like when they put those on, I was like, Oh man, look how sweet that looks on my quiver. <laughs> hey man, you know what it says? You got to look good doing it. <laughs> That's yeah, right. for sure. All right, so we talked about veins a little bit. I see this product you guys have. Um, let me see here. Sorry, that was the wrong. I hit the wrong button here. Let me go back. Let's talk about arrow rest a little bit. So in your arrow rest seg section of your website, you guys have target rest, hunting rest, recurve, and rest parts. Uh, let's focus on the hunting rest. Obviously, we know you guys do target, you know, killing it with that, of course. But as far as hunting goes, um, right off the bat, I see – a price difference of let's see that it says the driven's around we'll just say 149 and your highest levels around 246 
So that's a pretty good area, I think, price-wise. Is this driven your, your would you say, your best-selling one for hunting or like the Pro Drop or Prophecy? Um, you know, it's a pretty even split between the Prophecy and the Pro Drop. Um, one of the other refs that I would actually say is probably our top-selling ref, but it's not necessarily on the website. It's a dealer's specialty item is our Hawkeye, which is a very base level um limb driven rest i'm not even sure if it's on the website like i said um but our dealers really like to build it or purchase that because it assembles very it installs very easy it shoots really well um and it's sub 100 bucks but you know you want you want to have a product line a quality product line in every price point that for each improved step up in price provides a value to the customer you know um, even your low dollar rests need to be effective. They need to, the customer needs to enjoy using the product. And ultimately that's everything we make. If the customer doesn't enjoy using it, um, then we're failing, you know? So I like this. Um, I like this rest a lot. Actually, the talk, I, it wasn't on your website. You're right. It was, it was, I found it like on a pro shop. It's uh-huh. around $65, you know, whatever, give or take, depending on which pro shop and if there's you know, whatever, but either way, that's a great price. Also love the fact that, it looks like, and I can't be a hundred percent sure, but it looks like when the rest is down, the arrow actually has a seat uh, right in it. It looks like there's a way it yeah. holds it right in place. That's awesome. That like literally alleviates <laughs> a lot of issue. I think on the front end where it wiggles around or you have to glue on something, it looks like it basically holds it right there for you. Yeah. And that's actually, so that the Hawkeye utilizes the prophecy launcher and that, that little, when the launcher is down sitting on the shelf, there is a oh. little, engagement piece on the top of the launcher there um of course you know the prophecy being our high-end cable driven lock up in a position it's comparative you know to a qad um you don't notice that as much because when you load a prophecy you instantly lock the launcher up into position and and that's you know the way you're going to operate with it until you fire the shot but um it is a nice little feature that really helps just keep the arrow in place particularly with limb driven rests that you know the launcher is down until you draw the bow yeah this is the prophecy is nice too and i like this bright this beautiful red you guys got on here that's really cool when were the rest kind of introduced as a uh, product category for you guys has that been around for a while 2006 um we bought cavalier archery uh dick tone is dick and diane tone started cavalier in the late 70s i believe um dick's a three-time olympic gold medal or we'll say olympic medalist coach um and that's how he started cavalier was just building the recurve accessories uh and they were local here in arizona and they just wanted to retire they they were ready to move on their kids weren't interested in the business as happens quite often with small companies and um, so it was an easy purchase for us. We weren't, as we've done with all the companies we've purchased over the years, they were all small, smaller brands. And we weren't, if we couldn't bring on their employees, we weren't displacing employees either. You know, um, we care first and foremost internally about our employees more than anything. You know, um, if without quality employees that you take care of, you don't have a business. So, no doubt. Um, so even on all the brands we bought over the years, that's super important to us that we're not, if we can't absorb their employees, we're not displacing them either. So uh, again, uh, purchasing Cavalier in 06 and the, along with that came, I think back then they had their Avalanche um, and their Shadow and then products we still carry the uh, on the recurve side, the um, Pre-Flight, Pre-Flight Elite, um, Pre-Flight Micro and 
uh, a bunch of your your basic stick on flipper rests, all the elite tabs, a lot of recurve accessories. Are these um um not the well this is subject change, but when it comes to adhesives, uh, mm -hmm. are some of these adhesives okay to use with uh, inserts? Yeah, Max Impact's the one we we generally recommend with with inserts. You know, Max Bond um, is probably the best vein adhesive out there. Um, however, it's a, a type of cyanoacrylate superglue that, when it cures, it gets very hard. But which hard equals brittle. So, um, and it doesn't give you much working time if you're installing an insert, as particularly if one's a little snug. Um, that glue could set off in two or three seconds and you may not get the insert in place if you're wanting to spin it to make sure it's true. So um, we do have people who use Max Impact but or Max Bond, but I don't recommend it. Max Impact is a slightly less aggressive form um, and then it has a rubber additive in it so that it can take a shock and it won't fracture because that's what happens with Max Bond or if you use a standard cyanoacrylate, if you hit something hard, um, it'll the glue will fracture and then your insert and your point and whatever will come out. Yeah, you guys have you guys have very interesting um, products because you do really cover from start to finish, especially with the veins. That's actually really impressive with the glue. It looks like you guys got a Fletch three. What does this bits knob do? So the bits knob replaces the current um, your stock bits and burger knob. So we brought this out re very recently, um, and it has just gone bananas. It was actually a product that just started off as Gaius um, came up with an idea of just wanting to replace. His was wore out. He had an old Bits and Bur Burger jig he had picked up used, and his knob, if you've ever taken them out, they're a cast product. They're pretty low quality. Um, so he came in on what we would call a G job on a Friday with one of our other head lathe machinists, and they made four or five of them over a weekend. And went, wow, this thing really makes a massive improvement to operating a Bits and Burger. Mm. I think we should bring this to market. So uh, we did, and it's gone crazy. I think they officially launched in April. And gosh, I think we've already sold over 5,000 of them. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we brought out a, originally just a direct replacement, which would be your uh, three, your standard three and four fletch version um, with your, you know, the same setup that a Bits and Burger has your uh, 120 degree standard three fletch a 90 degree for four fletch and then your 110 by 70 X wing look. But then we also added in, um, which oddly when it first came out, I, it was kind of, I didn't think it, I would like it, but a four, five and six version. But you can actually, outside of the X-Wing look, you can get anything you want with the four, five, and six. You can three-fletch with it, you know, if you just skip one, skip a notch around with the six-fletch. But I've kind of recently been testing five-fletch with, because I traditionally run three max stealths. Um, I shoot a hybrid broadhead, so I want that little bit of extra steerage over, say, four. My go-to for mechanicals would be four of our PM23s or hybrid 23s. Um, but I shoot a hybrid head. So I want that little bit extra forgiveness and out West we shoot long shots. So I want to make sure that that arrow is correcting immediately, but I found five of our. Hey, and welcome to bowhunterplanet.com podcast. Thank you so much for your support and watching this show here on carbon TV or listening to it, wherever you get your podcast. I just want to take a moment to thank the sponsors who help us bring this show to you guys and keep it interesting and fun. I want to thank Tinks, Cat Work Truck, 
Camp Chef, Cobra Archery, HHA and HHA USA, Mojack, Thorn Broadheads, Victory Archery, Burris, Reveal Trail Cams, Apex Competitions, Heat Hog, Deer Camp Coffee, and Under Armour. Make sure you check out and log on and sign up on the bowhunterplanet.com brand new website. It is simple, it is awesome, and it's a great place to chat bow hunting and archery with a whole bunch of like-minded people. So we'll see you soon, and now, back to the show. PM23s, much lower profile, so we get less wind drift, but they weigh exactly the same as three max stealths. And uh, yeah, that's kind of been my go-to for the last six months on a lot of stuff. So. very cool what about let's talk about stabilizers a little bit so you guys have stabilizer line um do, do hunters use these for uh, like which ones would hunters use generally on these because i see a lot of target stuff I, you know would it be the mountain series or the yep yep our go-to is the mountain series and actually it has quickly become our top selling stabilizer um we brought it out two years ago um and in congruency with it we developed a new uh internal vibration dampening material that has been amazing and between how light that stabilizer is, um, it uses uh, 7075 end caps that are lightened. So they're extremely strong, very light. The carbon is extremely light. Add in the vibration dampening and you have a very, very effective and very sexy looking stabilizer. But how well it performs in the wind, how fast it recovers, um, especially in a shorter version, you know, and you're as a hunting bar, it's really, really impressive. And that, that stabilizer has exploded. It, we are just, you know, we, we build outside of buying carbon, we build everything in, in house here, the end caps, the weights, do all the assembly, all the packaging and everything in house. And I have four, four or five employees that it's everything they can to attempt to keep up with weekly orders, which is a great problem. Yeah. Wow. Yes, yeah. so uh, building inventory has not been possible, but we're keeping <laughs> up with orders acceptably, and that's about all we can do. But it's a great problem to have. That bar has gone crazy, um, and they do. They 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 shoot extremely well. They respond great in the wind. They have a wonderful feel. Um, they're not completely dead, so you still get a little feedback in the bow, which personally I prefer. Um, you know, it's not like the old Z coil Sim Z coil back twenty years ago that just killed every ounce of vibration. You didn't know if you made a good shot or not, but um, overall, I just a wonderful stabilizer, and the the consumer has really, really jumped on it. So, have you have you seen? Because you, you guys do uh, recurve products as well. I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Have you seen um, people trending back towards recurve and traditional traditional bows, especially trad? Yeah, trad and barebow. You know, um, Olympic recurve not so much because it's very a specialty. You know, and it doesn't lend itself to the usual backyard club shoot guy. But trad specifically, you know, I see Dave has a pile of recurves there on the wall. And um, yeah, trad has really come on strong, which is great to see. You know, it's getting back to the roots of archery, reminding people that archery can be fun. I myself have even started getting into barebow a little bit. Um, I am born and bred a, a compound shooter, so it's almost too demoralizing for me but it's fun um <laughs> i would not outside of going to chase some bunny rabbits or maybe some javelina i would not attempt to issue anything else with a, a recurve at the moment but my goal my goal with the recurve is a, a pig hog you know wild boar whatever wherever you want to call it depending on where you live but um 
that's my goal. I have, I started the process of getting, trying to practice daily, which I'm not doing right now. So I need to get back to work, but I had, uh, talked to bear archery and we were talking and, um, so they're like, Oh, we'll, we'll set you up. You know, we want to, you know, it'd be fun. We'd like to see you do it. You know, I said, okay. So they sent me a, a grizzly I have outside, but throughout the years, they sent me this, this one's pretty sweet. I actually just got this one the other day from them. This is the, uh, mag riser one. So it's actually mm-hmm. metal. Yeah. Uh, I just literally just assembled it. It's like brand new, but so I got this from them and it's got the Fred bear camel, which I absolutely love. And then I have some of the historical ones here that um, are from like the fifties and stuff, which is pretty cool. And then I got some that are different wood. Like this is a zebra wood. Uh-huh. And then Hoyt sent me this Satori, which I just got this one recently as well. They were on the podcast and they're like, you don't have the Satori. <laughs> I was like, no. So they sent me the Satori, which I'm going to do a video on this one as well. Now this is also a mag type riser, you know, a metal machine riser uh-huh. like the bear one as well but they're the only two companies really you know from the original manufacturers that are still doing you know traditional it's not many um bear and hoyt i didn't even know hoyt still had one until i was talking to him i was like really you guys still got one PSE's um, still making them too who, who is pse yep yep that's my next one i gotta talk to them guys and see if i can get some pse ones because i what i'm trying to do is use this as part of the classic series as well especially these wood ones i mean some of them are super old like this one here this specifically zebra wood one these are pretty old so i wanted to um get those on the show as well and i also got an indian archery indian industries one which was if you know the history it goes back to actually bear archery they acquired bear archery back in the day which was xi silverhawk which some people were like I don't know where X, whatever happened to XI. Well, XI was actually the compound version of Indian Industries. And mm-hmm. so when that all went to, when they, they're still in Indiana and in Evansville, and that's why Bear Archery's headquarters is in Evansville, because they brought Bear to Indiana and then left their facilities in Florida. It was very interesting to learn the history and um, just trying to, you know, go that route. But it's something I really want to learn this year. So I've been trying to just get better about practicing. And again, I'm not, I don't plan to shoot a deer with it or anything just because I, I don't think I'll ever be ready for that. And I'd be too nervous to try to shoot a deer. They're just too, too know what's going on. Whereas like a pig is a lot easier to get a shot off. I don't have to like worry about, you know, hiding too much, you know, like a deer. Yeah, that, that's how I feel with Havelina here. I'd feel all right shooting one Havelina with one at 10 or 15 yards, but not a deer. <laughs> yeah. So who, who else is in your vicinity? I know uh PSE's from Arizona, correct? Yeah, PSE, um, you know, within Arizona, there's some smaller companies. Uh, the Carbon Tech Arrows, I believe is what they're called. Oh. Yeah, uh, I've heard of that. Yeah. You know, and then like the Arizona Easy Fletch, which everybody assumes is ours, um, but it's they've grown exponentially in the last couple of years. Um, that's Randy Phillips. He owns uh, Archery Headquarters down in Phoenix, a pretty prominent shop here in Arizona. And he also owns uh arizona easy fletch there so that's another brand that's grown up quite a bit those are probably your primary ones um you know i i build broadheads barrels and it worked closely with dave dale perry of evolution outdoors was the grave digger broadhead before he sold that to plano synergy that's down in phoenix and we still produce all the ferals for for evolution um another that's the broadhead i shoot which i'm i absolutely love i'll shoot that broadhead at any animal in the world and uh yeah those are you know probably the big big ones are us and pse and then you know of a brand that's known well would be uh arizona easy fletch 
you guys have any um you guys have any issues there with water no okay no. so i didn't know if it was affecting a lot of the states out there i heard there's a lot of drought issues out west and i just well, wasn't sure what states were getting hit yeah you know where we particularly where we live here um we're on top of one of the largest uh underground uh lakes essentially um our water table is amazing here the chino aquifer is massive so here where we are we're about an hour and a half north of phoenix up in the mountains and we have a Tons of water, incredible amount of water um you know the part the places that are having a hard time with water powell and mead being down as far as they are which they're still massive lakes um huge massive lakes they still have lots of water but both lakes are down so far that they're getting below the functional level of the dams you know and i grew up on lake powell so it's it's sad to see in some aspects but at the same time um you know you get way off topic and into the politics and whatever you want but yeah california and and some of the stuff that they've applied and with the sierra club they're not allowed to create their own power off any of their water sources Uh, they i believe and i can be corrected on this but i believe they had two functioning dams hydro dams and one of them went down two years ago orville oroville dam i believe i don't know if it's back up and running it was headline news there for a little while because it was about to collapse and wipe out all of Sacramento. Um, Jeez. Crazy. And then I believe they have one other hydro dam, I, I believe on Shasta Lake, and that's it. Out of oh, all the wow. rivers, they don't, LA River, all that, they do not produce any of their own power. So um, Mead and, you know, um, Hoover Dam on Lake Mead and Glen Canyon Dam on Lake Powell they run nonstop providing power to most of California and Vegas. And jeez, I mean, there's a part of me that just goes, well, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't have good. water issues here. We're surrounded by water. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> and we, we don't get our power from them. We, we, our power comes from our local coal power plants or, or nuclear yeah. power. Plants. Yeah. Ours too. So what's your thoughts on, um, I've been asking a lot of people this question because it's important, but what's your, what's your thoughts on the boom from COVID for, you know, people buying archery equipment and stuff. Do you think we're, you think we're slowing down now? You think we're still uh, moving super fast or what do you think's happening? I guess with that. Oh, it's definitely planned out, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm sure a lot of the big boom and particularly we saw it here on the out West and in California, Oregon, Washington, um, they really saw it of people going, Oh my gosh, I can't get meat. Oh my yeah. gosh, I have to yeah. go provide for themselves or the ones even from a self-defense factor. I spoke with a lot of people who weren't okay with buying a gun or be it in California and Oregon where purchasing a gun can be more, much more difficult. Um, they were buying bows for self-defense. They didn't know what else wow. to do, you know, yeah. but a lot of them started opening their eyes to the joys of archery. So, um, we've definitely seen an uptick all the way across that. And I think it'll plane off a little bit, but I hope that we get 25% retainment off that. I think would be yeah. pretty acceptable, you know? Um, yeah, I was only asking because, uh, you know, I was looking at this thing. Actually, I don't know if I sent it to you, Tim. I got this screenshot that I found. Um, it was in a news article, and it had to do with, uh, oh, here it is. This is it right here. So this is deer license sales in Michigan. So um, from 2016 to 2019, there was a very big drop. So it went from 568 to 526, which isn't absolutely huge, but it's still a down, downward trend. Um, and 2020 went from 526 back to 564, which is where it was around 2016. 
In 21, it dropped back down from 564 to 539. So that's why I was asking. Because I was like, I wonder if that balance of people in Michigan who bought bows, bought AAE rest or whatever, right? I wonder if that's done now, right? So now we're going back down. And that's what I was trying to figure out when I saw that. Well, I mean, take a look at Arizona, you know, um, overall as a state, we're the third fastest growing economy. I'm, again, I'm going to go off the top of my head here. So these numbers won't be exact, but I believe it was something like 2018. We had 85,000 applicants, 17 or 18, 85,000 total applications for deer or for antelope and elk. So those applications are put in in February um, together. So they do antelope and elk together in February. I'm sure you're looking it up right now, so you can trying to find it. Yeah, it's more hard accurate see. numbers. So this last year in 2020, 2022, we had 228,000 applicants. Wow. So, yeah, you're talking what three x? Yeah, almost. Yeah, that's a huge increase. Yeah, yeah, and you know our herds have been doing okay. The elk herd continues to grow, but with that, that's definitely brought in some challenges and some changes, particularly just as a local resident now. Uh, you know, we went on some pretty good streaks of having tags, and I think we've drawn in my household. Um, my oldest daughter and my wife and I all all three of us hunt, and we've drawn three tags in five years now. So that's disappointing. But yeah, and that's why geez. you know. And then the hard part too is with all these newbies comes particularly out here um you know we, we don't have the deer herds that sizes that you guys have in michigan so um all these n- new hunters are out just shooting spikes and our herd gets greatly affected by that and now what yeah. the state did this year is they put in just a uh, a harvest limit that gets updated every week which that's you know our hunt just started here august 15th approximately and like our local unit i think they gave 45 harvests for the year for for archery but rifles still i think the amount of tags they sold for rifle went up huh. Jeez. so that that left me scratching my head to me where you know if they had just done a three-point minimum on one side would have solved to me would have solved the issue and yeah. a lot of us pushed really hard for it and i don't know why they, why they elected not to yeah, I think I think we had similar conversations in Michigan around the antler point restriction. They they've been exper- experimenting in different areas with doing it um, over time, and I think it has helped. I think it's helped the quality of deer, um, you know, most definitely uh, in Michigan. I think we've seen an increase in size in those areas that they're doing it. But there's a there's always that balance where, like right now, in a majority of the state, they just want you to kill as many as possible i mean you can get out you can get up to 10 and not bucks by the i mean not you you can't choose as many bucks as you want but does are pretty much free game um across the whole state all all season i think you can purchase something like up to 10 doe tags in a season for a private property um which which they you know they want to do the whole cwd you know and and kind of regulate the pop population in those areas and then the um tri-county area around detroit a lot of vehicle and deer accidents and that kind of stuff. They've even extended the season out another month yeah. um, for archery and that kind of thing. So it is, it, it is a very, very thin line, um, you know, in regards to what's right and what's wrong. I, and I think that a lot of times, you know, the way that they are doing it, um, it's hard to justify what, what their thought process is when they come out with the regulations that they have, you know, you look yeah. at, 
you look at states like Iowa and Ohio and Indiana, and you see these monster bucks, great quality deer populations, not an issue getting deer tags or anything like that. You wonder what everybody else is doing wrong, you know? Well, and again, well, I go ahead. Dude. I was going to say, I found this graph. that's actually crazy. It's, and I don't know how accurate this is. This was put out by Center of uh, Rural Pennsylvania, but it says number of holder hunting license holders by state in 2016. So the data's old now, but it shows like Michigan at like, again, compared to the other graph I just saw, there's a difference in numbers here, but let's, it says 767, 100, like thousand, 767,000 holders. But then, like, it shows the surrounding states. It shows Arizona at 216,000 license holders. It says Wisconsin's, like, 720, Minnesota, 572, Texas, 1.1 million. Um, but what I was going to say is, and then if you look at Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, those are, like, in the lower. It says, like, 400,000 in Ohio, 280,000 in Indiana, Illinois, 320,000. But I want to point out that those three states for Michiganders are where all the big bucks are in our region. <laughs> they're not in Michigan. They're in those three states. And it's interesting that they have half the hunters. So it makes sense that those big bucks actually survive compared to like here in Michigan. Just kind of funny. Exactly. No, I mean, it said Arizona went up. Um, you guys, it says you guys went up. It says percentage change in number of hunters license holders from 2012 to 2016. You guys went up 10.6%. So you have 10.6% more hunters. And then in Michigan, we went down 2.4%, mm-hmm. which makes sense because we have been losing. Yeah. And Pennsylvania is insane. 1.1% increase. And they already had 980,000 people. And that's a small state for 980,000 license holders. That's insane. But another an, another important question, I guess, look, we'll close on this question because it's really important. I want to just kind of get your thoughts on this. And, you know, this has been happening in our industry now for the last, I don't know, 10 years. It's been happening before that, but really happening in the last five to 10 years is this monopolization of our industry. Companies are getting acquired left and right. GSM owns tons of companies and not just bow hunting, but, you know, in archery, it's archery, guns, knives. Uh, Faradine owns a ton of companies. So I guess what's your thought on this, you know, being a company that's a major player in the industry, how does that make you feel? I guess you get nervous when you have these conglomerates coming around you and eating up your competition. Like, how do you feel about it? I guess, you know, I'll be honest. There's very, and you know, everybody always accuses me of not holding back enough, but there's not a ton (laughs) of brands that have held up real well once they've gotten bought by a conglomerate. You know, you, you look at some of the, the brands that have really grown and, and expanded and then got pr- bought up by a big conglomerate, you know, a half of their manufacturing, if not more, if it wasn't the U.S., it gets sent overseas. So the quality, not all the time, but 90 percent of the time, the quality tanks immediately. Um, and then that just everybody knows that right away. So at least in the United States, that puts a bad taste in people's mouths. You know, now maybe if it's deer feed or something of that nature, nobody's paying attention on that end. And it seems like in those portions, whether it be feed or or crops or something of that nature, um, I it seems like those companies hold up okay when when they they're bought out and the marketing dollars that are bet brought in become worth it. Um, you know, we're a little jaded on that end here in Arizona. We're not allowed to 
building crops or anything and deer and elk don't really care anyways they do what they want to do here they're not whitetail um yeah but no honestly it doesn't bother me one bit um and an, an, as a family-owned company and you know 99 of our manufacturing there are a few items that you just can't get in the united states at a reasonable price whether it be carbon um gosh there's a couple other things that we buy that are not in the united states and you just can't buy them in the United States at a reasonable price. Um, but 99% of what we sell is made right here in-house. And that also, it's reassuring in an aspect that as world markets and world economies go up and down and all over the place, we get more and more work from people who are having a hard time acquiring, whether it be product floating around on a boat for six months or, you know, God forbid it, you know they're going to try to push some other COVID thing over. You know, we're already seeing signs of it. Yep. You know, yeah. in Europe and in China, which means those factories are going to get shut down and they need product. They still need their product. Well, yeah. So, that self-reliability that you're talking about, I think, is one of the reasons why you've been around for 50 years, right? Yeah, I was going to say. And, it shows. And our, our diversity, you know. And like we said, you, you know, we do a tremendous amount of work you know, out beyond our brand. I mean, we are the largest archery accessory company by SKUs in the United States. I mean, I have almost 4,000 vein SKUs. Wow. But, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not helping you with your website. Don't even ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot Forget of those are that. OEM. And, you know, we do all these, a lot of licensed veins now for a lot of guys, which is great. Um, we have a few brands that are just killing it on the license side. Um, but they have, you know, a couple, two, three sizes, 10, 12 colors, a couple different forms of packaging. Yeah. You know, next thing you know, they've each got a hundred skews and veins. Um, yeah. Hands up in a hurry, but yeah, you know, I, it doesn't really bother me at all. You know, and I think it's a strength. You, you, the biggest thing is you have these these big conglomerates coming in and they're buying up companies because it's hard to walk away from that dollar. I mean, I get yeah. it. And trust me, we've had people offer. We've had people come take tours and they come see our facility and they go, well, do you want to buy us? Yeah, it's not <laughs> <thought>, right? <laughs> yep. Nick, thanks so much for being on, man. We appreciate it. Uh, Arizona Archery, uh, awesome stuff, man. Just absolutely awesome. Really looking forward to um, – I got to get some of your rest. We got to talk offline. I got to get some of these. I got to test this because it's very interesting to me how the arrow is held in by the by the, 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 the – um, can't think of the name. Is it <laughs> the, the launcher on the prophecy or the launcher? Dang it. That was the word I was looking for. I had it. And then it disappeared as soon as I start talking. Anyway, I, I think that's a really cool uh, setup. And again, if you're out there looking for those products, get to your pro shop because that, that Hawkeye is a great price for having that tech on there. I think that's absolutely amazing. So um, we'll put the links below to how to uh, get to all Nick's stuff and uh, you guys can check out for yourself. So thanks, Nick. Appreciate it, man. Oh, thank you guys for having me. The Hunter Planet podcast would like to thank our outdoor partners for their support. It's because of these companies we can keep this show educating, entertaining, and growing the archery heritage. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.